0: Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution marketing based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest.
1: Hello, my name's Shane Baldacchino and this is episode 53 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And for today's show, to which I'll tell you about soon, I have the perfect co-host to riff with,
0: Mr. Dean Samuels. Mr. Baldacchino, awesome to be back again. I've really missed these opportunities to riff with you. Uh, you know, I've actually always thought that we were a perfect DevOps pair. I know you've got your awesome dev, uh, dev skills and me with my system operations know-how, so I'm sure the listeners will be in for a good showing today. Uh, I must also say, Shane, on a, on a personal note, I know I've been away from contributing to Tech Chat, but I'm definitely an avid consumer of Tech Chat. It really gives me my monthly dose of all things uh, AWS. I really appreciate the work you've been uh, putting into it. I think
1: you've been a bit too nice for me here. But look, on Tech Chat, we are a show for the builders in all of us. So builders come in many shapes and sizes, and whilst we mainly look through the lens of a software engineer, developer, architect, there's another category equally as important, and that's a systems engineer, sysadmin, network engineer.
0: Yeah, that's true, Shane. I mean, the cloud platforms like AWS really does allow all of these different shapes and sizes of builders uh, to add true value to their organizations or to their own ideas. And what I mean by this is they can really focus on things that um, provides that innovation rather than uh, just keeping the lights on or, or really what we call that undifferentiated heavy lifting. And and these builders can really reinvent themselves to innovate on behalf of their customers, whether it's their businesses, their teams, or their own end customers as well.
1: Exactly. And look, AWS may see, be seen as a platform for the developers, but underneath these higher order services are fundamentally things that you can't escape from, such as how many usable IPs in a subnet or how to read a CIDR and so on. So Dean, I kind of feel you and me are made for this episode. I want to use you as a bit of a subject matter expert to bounce questions off and I have no doubt you're up for the challenge today.
0: No doubt at all. Actually, uh, as I mentioned before, I do come from an infrastructure uh, background, especially in areas of uh, storage, networking, Linux and virtualization. Uh, I've worked with many customers in the past on uh, automation. I can actually remember uh, in my previous life where I used to really focus on uh, operating system automation, so leveraging technologies like uh, Kickstart, uh, which is a way to automatically deploy Linux operating systems and and applications as well, um, but now we've actually come. Now, but now we come to cloud and API-based programmatic uh, resources. You truly have the ability to define your infrastructure as code, which means that operations teams can get the benefit of source code and version control that software developers have been using for for years.
1: Yeah. And that's really awesome. You know, version control, being able to version control your infrastructure, super powerful stuff. Mm. So Dean, I think I need to establish a bit of cred for myself. So let me share a story with you just to establish a bit of backbound cred. Maybe I'll even get to turn my hat backwards soon. Sounds good. So, Sounds good. Okay. So Shane, AJ, show and tell in rural part of Australia. So Newburgh, Victoria for anyone who's listening. He takes into school a Microsoft DOS 3.3 manual because, come on, you know, how cool was a disk operating system? And I'm sure all the other eight-year-olds would have loved to hear about that, you know, all those copy cons, type this and that to see how things work. And then fast forward, age 18, on a whim, kind of started the hosting company, cool thing to do. Eight years later, stuck in a bit of a vortex, 15,000 customers seven racks of gear and many hours, I mean many hours, (laughs) sitting with headphones in data centers, probably trying to figure out how to get SANS working or countless sleepless
0: nights and lots of lessons learned. And uh, lots of bundling with blankets and jackets as well. I remember being in data centers for long periods of time. So I can uh, definitely uh, sympathize with uh, your experiences there, uh, Shane. And you mentioned there are lots of lessons learned. Um, What do you think is your biggest lesson?
1: Well, I think my biggest lesson, Dean, was around automation. And look, for those hosting aficionados out there, this was pre-CPanel, pre-WHCS, pre-Plesk. So, you know, when you're growing, I mean, like growing customer-wise, how are you going to scale? You know, you can't do it via ClickOps, adding entries to Bind, Apache, IIS, your mail server. Out of necessity, I had to break out Visual Studio and create my own control panel. And I did all of the above and more because as humans, we don't scale. And that's my journey about automation, and hence, today, why I'm at AWS. So, Dean, can I keep my hat backwards from for the rest of the show?
0: Uh, well, I think you've earned it so far, but I, I really think it depends on what is in store for the rest of the show. Okay, then. We'll have to see.
1: So, look, I've been here about three years now, but when I started, there was this legendary aura at Time. There were these sessions of round-by-one Dean Samuels with his black belt ninja tips on AWS – packed out sessions and looking back what's even more impressive these were usually the graveyard shifts so what I mean by that last day at like four o'clock and for those not playing along at home that's a tough slot to fill you know you it's pretty hard to fill them but you know, here I was looking at these AWS Black Belt Ninja Dojo slides on SlideShare and really impressive. So, Dean, do you want to tell us a bit about these sessions that you ran and what did you cover?
0: Yeah, I think uh, who's been nice to who now, uh, Shane. I appreciate that uh, that compliment. Yeah, it uh, <laughs> was a, an interesting um, in, uh, program that I developed. Uh, actually, the second year I was in uh, AWS, so um, back in 2013. Um, you know, I actually started in AWS in, in 2012 and, and at the time, uh, there was a like about 20 services that we offered. So uh, everybody at that time was a subject matter expert across those services. But of course, today, you know, we have over 165 and still continually uh, growing. So it's a little bit more challenging to become that subject matter expert. But back in the day, uh, because my background in automation, I really wanted to be able to share my knowledge and my experiences working with other customers in how we could actually implement certain uh, shortcuts and what I would say life hacker type uh, implementations into their AWS usage. Uh, For example, uh, I had some sessions on how to set up the most effective VPC connectivity, uh, whether it was uh, inter-region or intra-region. And this was actually way before uh, technologies that we have now like VPC peering or a transit gateway or direct connect gateway, which actually makes it a little bit easier to have that interconnectivity amongst your VPCs. Well, we'll talk about how to actually leverage some traditional uh, technologies like software RAID uh, to get improvement in your EBS storage in terms of performance. But of course, uh, with the introduction of uh, uh, technologies like provisioned IOPS, uh, that actually uh, makes it a lot easier for our customers to get the, be- get the best performance out of their EBS uh, storage. I would also talk a little bit about how you could do your own scripting and your, your own uh, build your own applications and programs to do a lot of the operations and management of your infrastructure. Um, for example, ar- around areas of resource tagging and being able to automatically back up or snapshot your EBS uh, volumes. But of course, um, AWS has brought out new features and technologies that will take care of that uh, for you. Even with the introduction of things like AWS Lambda, Amazon Guard Duty, AWS CloudTrail, you have a lot more insights um, through the click of a button of what's actually happening uh, on your uh, platform. Whereas previously, my black belt tips would talk about how to uh, create um, uh, effectively these type of services uh, yourself so you had that customization but you know because uh, one of the differentiators uh, for AWS is really our pace of innovation a lot of those black belt tips that I've uh, delivered to no less than you know five six years ago they really haven't aged well but you know I accept that that's actually a good thing for our customers it really removes that undifferentiated heavy lifting uh, for them Cool. So, I think, Dean, you've
1: established yourself as a bit of a subject matter expert and I'm excited to run this show with you. Don't tell Pete that, um, but I'm sure he's listening (laughs) along. You know, I actually Mm -hmm. fielded a phone call from Pete on the weekend debugging a non-posting PC he's building. I'll uh, let him maybe on a future show explain why his PC wouldn't post. But anyway, I think we need, to, Dean, take a look at the news and what's happening in the world of a US cloud.
0: Yeah, I think so. And uh, I'm lucky enough to to talk about probably one of the bigger announcements that we've made over the last few weeks. Um, for those of you who, who may not know, um, we actually launched another region, which was quite interesting. So on July 20, 29, 2019, we actually announced the immediate availability of the Middle East Bahrain region. And what's significant about this is it's actually our first region in the Middle East. Now, the The Bahrain region actually consists of three availability zones. And with this launch, AWS now offers 22 regions and uh, 69 availability zones around the globe. Now, in terms of our edge locations, we also now have 187 CloudFront edge locations available globally, which really allows our customers to deploy true global applications. Yeah, and
1: look on the edge location front, just remember these edge locations also perform not only CDN-active. but you know, DNS and Lambda at Edge functionality. And speaking of Lambda at Edge, we made an announcement at the start of August, which really works for me as I'm really not much of a Node.js guy. Lambda at Edge now supports the use of Python version 3.7. So that means in addition to currently supported Node.js, you can push your Python 3.7 scripts out to Lambda at Edge giving you the flexibility for opting for a programming language of your choice. So, Dean, it's past mid-year now. Most of the summits are front-loaded towards the end of the year, but they still keep rolling on, although a little less densely packed.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, AWS summits is a great way for us to be able to share our own experiences uh, working with customers, and typically we'll have customers presenting at these events, so attendees can really get an idea of how technology is allowing businesses to to really innovate and, and really compete uh, in their various uh, industries and like you mentioned we do have some summits uh still are still going on but uh two main summits that are coming up in the month of august we have our public sector uh summit in australia hosted in the city of uh, canberra um i don't know if you've been to canberra before uh, uh i've
1: actually presented there last year yeah. i think at, at summit
0: yeah it's Oh, there you go. Uh, So uh, the Canberra Summit uh, uh, will be on the 20th and 21st uh, for those of you who are able to make it. It is a beautiful city. Um, And then we have our uh, Mexico Summit uh, um, in Mexico City on the 29th of August. Uh, Unfortunately, I haven't been to Mexico City yet. I have been to Mexico, but uh, hopefully next year I'll have an opportunity to present uh, present there.
1: Canberra was a little bit cold, just, you know, looking back on it last time I presented there. So look, one last thing to note, there is an upcoming AWS Online building series on the 27th and 28th of August, like AWS Innovate, to help you deepen your skills on topics such as web applications, DevOps, database, security, cloud economics, and storage. Both myself and Gabe will be running sessions
0: on this. That's, uh, that's awesome. And, and you did mention AWS Innovate there, uh, Shane. So um, AWS Innovate is our online uh, virtual conference. We actually ran a global edition a couple of weeks ago, and I was very fortunate uh, to be involved with that. Um, I was uh, actually uh, delivering the closing keynote with Olivia Klein, who's our head of emerging technologies for APAC and sometime host of Tech Chat, although he hasn't been on uh, in a while uh, there, Shane, so we might have to invite him back um, for a, for a cameo appearance. Um, now the uh, the AWS Innovate um, had over eighty sessions, uh, with some of these sessions delivered in Spanish and Portuguese for our Latin American uh, customers, and then also Korean for obviously our South Korea uh, customers as well. Um, it was amazing. A uh, content uh, that are, that is actually available to our listeners. So if you were unable to attend that uh, online virtual conference a couple of weeks ago, you can actually go to our aws.amazon.com uh, site, and if you go to forward slash events forward slash aws-innovate or just simply do a search for aws-innovate online conference, you'll actually get access to this amazing uh, content that you can consume uh, at your leisure. But of course, anyway, Shane, uh, the listeners here are to uh, listen to all things tech. So are we ready to get into it? Sure am. But look, don't forget, folks, uh,
1: August 27th, August 28th, come tune in. So yes, on with the show. Dean, there is so much to talk about today. So we're going to have to keep this short and sharp. And as prepping the notes for today, I was struggling a bit, but I came back to the who, you know, who's the target audience and more so who is a modern day system administrator, systems engineer, you know, have times changed? I asked myself when I was acting in these roles and I had some fun times back then. Automation was a thing, but it's not like it was today. You know, I was using VBScript, ADSI, PowerShell and so on, but it was for one thing or another, you know, I might have been dealing with IS, maybe Active Directory or manipulating even a switch stack via, you know, TFTP.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, right? So you were dealing with different uh, disparate systems, but now customers are moving to the cloud. And of course, we won't get into reasons right now because that's a whole different topic of conversation. But there are some key differences or drivers around this. Uh, number one, of course, is around that automation. Because... Uh, everything is programmatically accessible through a range of APIs, from your networking, through your storage, through to your compute, and everything above and in between is, uh, is, everything is configurable and accessible accessible through these APIs. Therefore, you can introduce um, uh, uh, your, your own pipelines or automation uh, to get things done. Uh, the second reason, of course, is around the scale. You know, people do expect these environments instantly. Um, so you're talking about deployment times in um, seconds or minutes, rather than waiting for the long, drawn-out process of procurement and installation, cabling and racking and and other things before you can get access to the resources. And we mentioned it before. Lastly, we are talking about infrastructure as code. So that ability to really define your entire platform from infrastructure through to application in a set of code and then therefore have it in a repository for version control. You know, how many system engineers back then were checking in infrastructure stacks to a source cloud control repository. Not
1: many. And look, well said. And that last point is the one I want to start the show on. So let's talk about automation and what automation options we have in the AWS cloud for the budding administrators. And really, if you're going to do anything semi-serious on AWS, automation is absolutely the way forward. And what comes to my mind is AWS CLI, AWS tools for Windows PowerShell, CloudFormation and now CDK or the Cloud Development Kit, which has just gone GA as of a few weeks ago.
0: Yeah, so let's, let's talk about these four. And And, and, and listeners would notice that uh, Shane didn't mention uh, the AWS Console, which is obviously another way to manage your resources. And you know, when you start talking about automation, the AWS Console is probably not the best tool to uh, to use when you're starting to talk about automation. You may be using it to get some views and, and visual information, but if you are going to look at automating certain... Uh, tasks and processes it's one of these four or maybe a combination that uh, uh, you'd be looking at and I'm really excited to be able to talk about the AWS CLI uh, as I have a Linux uh, background you know I still tend to move to the command line to actually do a lot of my uh, my tasks so I even uh, run a command line on my Mac um, laptop um, uh, uh, accessing different uh, applications and I sometimes get uh, funny looks from people of why I'm using the command line and I just find it a lot easier and more efficient Uh, to be able to use the CLI. Um, And so the AWS CLI, as the name implies, is the AWS command line interface. It's essentially an open source tool that enables you to interact with AWS services using commands in your command line shell. Uh, With minimal configuration, you can start using uh, functionality equivalent to that provided by the browser-based AWS management console. And from the command prompt in your favorite terminal program, it's simply a matter of using the command uh, PIP3 because it's a Python based uh, uh, command line um, tool so using your PIP3 installer to actually install or upgrade the AWS uh, CLI you can have a look at our uh, documentation for the exact command that you may want to use and the great thing about this is it's actually available for Windows as well as Linux uh, operating system so you can run the AWS CLI from the operating system of your choice now all information uh, uh, infrastructure, AWS administration, management, and access functions in the management console, as I mentioned before, is actually available in the CLI. And fun fact, Shane, um, the new um, uh, infrastructure features and services uh, that we introduce provide full CLI functionality at launch or with 180 days of launch. So that means that a lot of customers can leverage uh, the AWS CLI to its full extent to actually manage and uh, operate the various uh, new and uh, um, uh, existing AWS uh, services. Uh, One of the uh, key things is that we also introduce um, more ease of use functionality into the CLI, um, where we um, in addition to the low level API equivalent commands, some services have a higher level set of commands that simplify using the service uh, rather than using the low level commands. And what I mean, for example, is we have a S3 function as part of the AWS CLI, which uses a set of common commands that provide a familiar syntax, for example, for copying um, or uploading uh, uh, files, downloading files and deleting files. So customers can actually use this higher level set of commands rather than the low-level API equivalent with AWS CLI.
1: Yeah, cool. So look, just on AWS CLI, worth reiterating is a point around 180 days and new services. Our platform changes, we all know that. So ensure you upgrade the AWS CLI on a regular basis, Often a service will stipulate a certain version required of the AWS CLI command and you can deem what version you have installed with the AWS hyphen hyphen version command. For the PowerShell people out there, my people here, and we realize for the Microsoft ecosystem, PowerShell is pretty much a de facto standard. AWS tools for PowerShell lets you do everything the AWS CLI does in the PowerShell scripting environment. And I would say the command syntaxes between AWS CLI and AWS Tools for PowerShell are pretty similar. So if you did start out on AWS CLI and then move to AWS Tools for PowerShell, the jump isn't that hard.
0: Just, just, and just on that—that that is so true as well. Uh, you know, I do come from a Linux background, but I found that moving to PowerShell was quite an easy transition. And, and uh, you are right. In fact, in certain situations, PowerShell um, is actually my preferred tool when managing AWS uh, resources. I know you're going to get into into some of it uh, now, but even things like object manipulation and object access was a lot easier and straightforward using the PowerShell uh, PowerShell tools. Tool. So I can really appreciate um, that tool being av- available to. Uh, to users who are maybe more familiar with the uh, the Windows and PowerShell uh, platform. Yeah,
1: And look, let's phrase this delicately. There may be, let's say, a little bit less love for PowerShell these days than, say, generic other programming languages across the wider base, but it can actually be much cleaner. And I'll give you an example of this. I had to convert a function I wrote once from PowerShell into Bodo. So Bodo is our Python SDK. And I think the PowerShell version used about 50% less code. Like I wasn't doing... Black like something spectacular. But, you know, for those who haven't used PowerShell, I say, you know, if you're on the Windows ecosystem and I know that's exactly the place where I would be starting. So AWS Tools for PowerShell, it actually used to be called AWS Tools for Windows PowerShell, but it's now called AWS Tools for PowerShell because it's available on both Windows, Linux and Mac OS via .NET Core, and there's a command line reference available on our website.
0: Yeah, and I really love that, right? So now customers have a choice of uh, AWS Tools for PowerShell, as well as the AWS CLI, which is available across all those platforms you just mentioned, Windows, Linux and uh, Mac OS. So it really gives customers choice on uh, what they uh, what they use but um both AWS CLI and AWS Tools for PowerShell are still very script based and they typically would be used maybe when you wanna perform some single or simple functions like publishing to an SNS topic or maybe copying data to an S3 bucket and, and so on. Uh, one of the big benefits of AWS is the ability to actually stamp out environments. You can define all the resources that's required for your entire application or, uh, or platform. Um, not talking about a few services here and here and there, but really end-to-end all the different resources you need to host and run your applications. Uh, the network uh, that you define, for example, using uh, technologies like VPC, uh, associated uh, uh, controls or restrictions to that network using things like uh, access control lists and security groups. The ability to define exactly how you, the various resources you deploy into that VPC is routed through uh, route tables. And even defining things like Lambda functions Functions that you might be using in your application or uh, API gateways to allow access to your applica- application from the, uh, from the outside world. So you can really define all of those AWS resources uh, in a set of files uh, that now turns your infrastructure um, in, into code. And one of the ways that we've uh, we've done this and, and uh, implemented uh, the in- infrastructure of, of code is using something called AWS Cloud Formation. Now, I'm sure many listeners are very familiar with AWS AWS CloudFormation. Um, It was actually launched, uh, I would say, back when I was in a different uh, age bracket, chain, uh, about nine, 10 years ago. Uh, May 2010 is actually when we uh, launched AWS CloudFormation. And I must say, even to this day, it is probably my most favorite uh, service or feature of AWS, simply because you can really encompass all of your different resources in these set of uh, CloudFormation uh, templates. So AWS CloudFormation provides a common language for you, you to describe and provision all the infrastructure resources in your environment. Whether you want to use YAML or JSON to model and provision in an automated and secure manner, and not to mention repeatable, all the resources needed for your applications. You can have this across regions, and of course, across accounts as well. You have the ability to use nested files, arguments, custom resources, and other great features of CloudFormation. Too much that too much to be able to get through in this one session. But uh, for example, you might uh, have uh, a CloudFormation um, a template that calls other nested CloudFormation uh, files.
1: Yeah, like a function in an object-oriented programming language.
0: Exactly. So it means that CloudFormation is very reusable. Uh, you can check it into your source repository uh, with your application and you not only have your code, but you now have your version-controlled infrastructure. And I think it's just super cool. It is really super cool. So just to touch on Dean's comments, you know, from
1: auto-scaling groups to everything in between, CloudFormation is pretty amazing and personally embodies my, you know, that aha moment in transitioning myself from on-premise infrastructure go into one that really got the power of the cloud and at that time I worked for a pretty large known well Australian brand that went from regularly patching their infrastructure come Microsoft Patch Tuesday to simply updating the AMI ID.
0: Yeah, that's right and that's because we actually update the uh, AMI. Maybe maybe we can very quickly explain what an AMI is, uh, Shane. Yeah, so look, an AMI
1: is an Amazon machine image. That's a disk image of the EC2 instance with the latest build of, say, you know, the operating system. So for us, every two weeks, we push out a new AMI for the latest build of Windows. So we went from patching our fleet of Snowflakes, so these are our individual servers that are very quite unique, to changing an AMI ID and re-releasing our infrastructure. So we've gone from having infrastructure that was very long-lived to a bunch of immutable infrastructure that would be short-lived four to eight weeks and be versioned.
0: Yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, what a lot of customers should be looking at in in a lot of use cases is these transient service servers, right? So these immutable servers when they're dealing with things like EC2, that can be easily uh, replaced. Uh, And leveraging things like AMI is a good way to do that. Um, Something that we didn't mention, Shane, and, and Shane, you alluded to was this fleet of new systems every time the AMI was updated. So not only does CloudFormation do infrastructure, but it can aid in configuration management. So once the EC2 instances online, uh, then what? It can actually use what's known as user data bootstrapping, where you can pass uh, scripts, uh, for example, Bash or PowerShell uh, to actually configure the instance. So what you would normally do on the command line in the instance itself, once it's provisioned, you can automate it the first time the instance is deployed and actually started. I will call that as a relationship between AMI baking, which implies an
1: overhead. So you may want to bake in common components such as Apache IaaS and common files into into a custom image versus configuration at runtime. Dean, do you know where I'm going here? Imagine if my website did need to auto scale quickly.
0: Yeah, so well if it's baked, scale out times are going to be faster as there's less on the fly configuration. Uh, But you are paying the price of having to maintain this image versus a plain vanilla image. Um, I think of it as a frozen pizza model, rather a pizza model. Uh, your baked image could be like your frozen pizza, where your customized image or made-to-order uh, or could be like a made-to-order pizza. The frozen pizza takes less time to make, but it's pretty much what it is. Um, whereas the made-to-order pizza takes more time, but it can actually be customized to what you uh, what you need. Um, and so, Shane, the last uh, tool that you mentioned uh, is the, uh, the CDK or the Cloud Development Kit. Um, you mentioned it actually went GA a few weeks ago, and and I believe you and Dr. Pete actually covered this in episode 49. So I advise the listeners to uh, uh, review that episode if you want to go a bit deeper on the, uh, the cloud development kit. But at a high level, the AWS CDK is a uh, framework to define AWS infrastructure, and the artifact or output of CDK is code, which is actually cloud formation.
1: Yeah, look, I have to laugh at this frozen pizza model here, Dean. That's something I haven't heard before, but... But yeah, bang on, Like that's exactly, and maybe I'm even going to use that when describing this in the future. Go for it. (laughs) Cool, all right. So this is probably straying a little bit off the sysadmin theme here, but CDK is pretty cool, and it may be the 2019 version of CloudFormation. Again, take a listen in the past episode to gain a better understanding. So I think we can park automation for a bit. We can't fully park it as it's embedded into everything we do at AWS, but let's pivot slightly. So Dean, I have a good friend who is very AWS savvy and without embarrassing her, as I know she'll be listening, she expanded her empire from a traditional development realm into the world of systems administration. She's seasoned, but her mind is in the cloud, which isn't a bad place to be these days. She was telling me about entering a small scale server room. So not your huge multi-four colos here for the first time and being a bit taken back. As she had devices explained to her, many of these were foreign And we were discussing this over a coffee and a chat. And she said to me, hey, you know, there needs to be a website which translates on-premises systems into AWS terminology. I was actually about to say lingo here, but that's very Australian. So, Dean, let's have some fun here. We're going to play a game. Oh, I love games
0: and I love fun. All right. Okay,
1: Dean. So, pop quiz time for you. All right. Question one, what would the equivalent of a sand be in AWS?
0: Okay, so you're talking about a storage area network and the ability to attach and detach this storage to compute. So I would say that our uh, EBS, our Elastic Block Store, is uh, the equivalent of what a SAN provides on-premises. One of several features of the uh, Elastic Block Store is the ability to uh, define exactly how much throughput and performance uh, you want from the storage. So we've introduced a type of EBS uh, volume called the provisioned IOPS, And essentially what that means is based on the size of storage that you provision will determine the amount of performance you can actually get out of that storage. So it allows uh, customers to build applications where the storage throughput is predictable uh, and actually defined using provisioned IOPS. But there's many other types of storage volumes that uh, users can actually define with EBS to cater for the various workloads. For example, if they want large amounts of storage, but they don't need that um, high speed uh, uh, performance, uh, whether their application is going to be streaming con- content in a maybe a sequential way rather than uh, random. But one of the great things with EBS volumes is customers not only have the ability to resize their volume on demand and uh, on the fly, meaning that there's no interruption to the service, but they also have the ability to change from one EBS, vo- EBS volume type to another.
1: Okay, good answer there, Dean. Okay, so you've passed that first question, but what about what's the equivalent of a VHD, a VHDX, or a VMDK? So, firstly, do you know what they are, Dean?
0: I hope uh, I do. Well, uh, I okay, Go, going back to my. My, my virtualization platform uh, knowledge so VHDX and VMDK uh, refers to the format of files under, uh, for example, Microsoft Hyper-V uh, or VMware. Uh, the format of the files that are actually the actually the virtual machine. So virtual machines will be stored somewhere as files, and the file format used by those vendors I mentioned will typically be VHD and VMDK. So they're actually the definition of the uh, of the virtual machine now one of the great things with this these type of file formats is you could uh, copy them across to other locations, other virtualization platforms, to get an exact copy of uh, of your virtual machine. So I would say that the equivalent under uh, uh, AWS would be the Amazon machine image, which we referenced before. Uh, so Amazon machine image, image is the same concept, the ability to create a golden image um, of a virtual machine and be able to reuse that not only in your own account, but across different accounts and even across different regions as well. So it makes for provisioning your custom operating systems a lot more efficient.
1: Yeah, cool. Okay, so I spent some time dealing with SwitchStack ACL. So logging in, Cisco IOS, dealing with ACLs, setting network ACLs. What am I talking about here in AWS?
0: Right, so ACLs, you're talking about access control lists. So the ability to restrict uh, access uh, to certain networking components. So uh, I think first of all, we'd have to understand the concept of a VPC, the virtual private uh, cloud. So the virtual private cloud is essentially the abil- a logical construct that's the ability for customers to define a networking construct in AWS. The networking construct will be a, um, a set of CIDR addresses or ranges um, that will be the IP addresses allocated to resources that are deployed into the VPC. Uh, the VPC will then be broken down into a series of subnets so that you can actually have more control over how things are routed uh, either within the VPC across those different subnets or uh, externally from the VPC, whether it's to the internet or maybe other VPCs that you will connect with as well. Now access control list implementation with the VPC is through something called the network ACL or the network access control list. So this will be a set of rules, usually IP address based or port based, uh, that will restrict access between communication within the VPC, so across the different subnets, or again, like I mentioned, outside of the VPC, maybe to the internet or to to other VPCs. Now, one thing, important thing to remember is network ACLs with VPC is actually a, a stateless uh, technology, meaning that you'd have to set essentially two rules for every type of communication. So, for example, if you want to allow HTTP traffic to uh, move across two different subnets, you'd have to have an incoming rule and also an outgoing rule uh, using network ACLs. Um, that's unlike another type of firewalling technology we have with VPCs called security groups. So security groups actually attach to individual resources like EC2 instances, relational database service Instances, Cache instances, essentially instances that are based on the EC2 technology. Um, and so these security groups are actually stateful. And what that means is you only need to define one rule. Um, and essentially what security groups will do is deny everything by default. And so you would explicitly allow what type of connections you, you're going to permit uh, to the resource, but you only have to uh, define essentially the incoming uh, uh, connection or the, or the, 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 the initial connection Um, Of any uh, type of uh, uh, connection you do want to establish.
1: Okay, so what about what is a virtual machine in AWS talk?
0: Right, so loving these uh, loving these questions, Shane. Um, so, of course, the uh, VM or virtual machine in AWS would be the Amazon EC two, the Elastic Compute Cloud. Um, and so, the EC two was actually one of our original services uh, that we launched, Shane, back in uh, two thousand and six. Um, since that time, we've introduced a wide range of new features and enhancements to the to the service. Uh, so, not only do customers have a choice of deploying their virtual machine or Amazon EC two images as Windows or Linux operating systems, but they also have a choice over um, what type of capacity that EC2, EC2 instance has with over 120 different uh, predefined sizes uh, for CPU, memory, GPU allocation, and even some uh, storage. And one of the great things about um, the Amazon EC2 service is the way it's built. It's actually built for the on- only the time that, it's a- uh, that it is up okay, and running. Okay, so
1: let's just say I'm a user, Of a Linux or a Windows instance here, and it might be mounting an NFS or an SMB share. How am I going to do that inside AWS?
0: Right, right. So we spoke about uh, storage area network, Uh, so a SAN storage before with EBS as the equivalent. Uh, Under AWS, the equivalent of your network-attached storage or your NAS would be either the Amazon EFS, um, Elastic File System Service. Uh, So this is a service that's available in certain regions that will provide uh, NFS or SMB protocol-based network-attached storage that you could attach to your EC2 instances. Um, But then we also have a, a relatively new service called the FSX Windows uh, service. So as the name suggests, it's specifically for uh, Windows operating systems to access these network-attached storage. All right,
1: so I think I need to make, make this a little bit trickier for you, Dean. Uh, you know, All right. when, when I was playing this game with her, I was asked a question, what is the on-premises equivalent of Amazon S3?
0: Oh, interesting question. So maybe we'll have to define the difference between our storage service, Amazon S3 and uh, EBS. So EBS is, as the name suggests, a is a, black, a block storage service. Uh, what that basically means is when you attach it to an EC2 instance, uh, you still have to uh configure or deploy the file system uh, that you would like to use. Maybe something like a Linux file system like ext4 or maybe a Windows file system if it's going to be mounting on uh, a Windows OS. Uh, And then once the file system is defined, you then mount it and then you can start accessing and copying your files uh, to that uh, device. Whereas Amazon S3 is what we call an object store. And what an object store is, is typically you use a API of some kind to access um, the files. Um, so rather than having to create the file system, that's actually all done for you. Rather than having to mount it, it's actually a set of APIs that you'd use. And in the, in the case of Amazon S3, uh, it predominantly uses the REST API interface. So the REST API allows you to make calls to upload, download, delete, copy, and a range of other actions on the, um, on the S3 um, uh, storage. So if you're having a look at an equivalent on for on-premises, it would really depend on whether you are provisioning a storage system on-premises that allows your compute or your applications to access the files via an API call rather than a block storage or a network-attached uh, storage.
1: Realistically, there probably isn't any hardware device out there that's going to emulate the ability to provide object storage. And I think also worth calling out as we've been going through these different types of devices, you know, NASAs and SANS and, you know, network systems, if you are wedded to any of these devices, there's a pretty good chance you'll find them in the AWS marketplace. So if you need that specific brand of load balancer or firewall in the AWS cloud, head to the marketplace and instantiate it today on EC2.
0: Uh, yeah, that's right. So whilst we have a range of different uh, services available that can uh, uh, replicate what you t- you typically have on-premises, like we, we mentioned before, um, you do have access to this wide range of marketplace uh, appliances uh, that you can run. Now, it's really up to the customer um, uh, what they would like to do. Obviously, uh, we, we we may, in certain situations, suggest to use the native AWS offering because it may remove a lot of that undifferentiated heavy lifting, lifting in order of... Uh, in, in, in reference to managing these appliances, but customers also may want to use the similar technology they use on-premises uh, in the cloud as well. And this is where these virtual appliances from the um, AWS marketplace really comes uh, into play and adds value to run uh, as EC2 instances.
1: Yeah, so look, I will say though, as a rule of thumb, whilst you can use these virtual appliances, it's often better to use native AWS offerings as these virtual appliances, as you just mentioned, they're run on 2 too. So take an example, a load balancer. Well, you know, you'll need multiple load balancers to provide multi-AZ and high availability. You're not going to get auto-scaling natively and other features that you would with a product in our load balancing family. So just to summarize, unless you've got a good reason to use a hardware appliance, stick to the native AWS building blocks as it will deliver a more cohesive and seamless experience. Some of those questions, Dean, we just touched on, we were looking through a networking lens. And being a sysadmin, engineer, your world may not be 100% cloud. You may be dealing in a hybrid model. Workloads on-premises in the cloud all need to work harmoniously together. So if you're in a hybrid world, how does one provide connectivity, Dean, so that a developer at a desk can natively connect to a server and or resource just like they're connecting to something local? And before I hand the mic over to Dean, I just want to clarify, you know, we quickly elaborated on VPC before. So a VPC or virtual private cloud, as the name implies, is a virtual network dedicated to you inside your AWS account. It's logically isolated from other virtual networks in the AWS cloud. You can launch your AWS resources such as, you know, EC2, RDS, containers, and so on into your VPC. You can specify an IP address range for the VPC. So your CIDR, add subnets, associate security groups, configure route tables, and so on. You can launch AWS resources into a specified subnet, use maybe a public subnet for resources that need to be connected to the internet, a private one for resources that don't need connections to the internet, and you might give your VPC a site range, perhaps something like 10.0.0.16 know, and create lots of subnets within this. So in summary, I would say a VPC is a virtual network that resembles a traditional network that you'd operate in your own data center with all the benefits of using a scalable infrastructure on AWS. So Dean, I've set this up for you. We have our AWS network and we have our on-premises network. How do we get them to talk to each other?
0: Right. And, and before I get into that, in, in terms of the options, um, uh, you did mention it before, but we'd just like to reiterate that, you know, a lot of services that customers actually use on AWS have been built with uh, Amazon EC2, our, our virtual machine service. So for example, our Amazon RDS, our relational database service, or Elasticash, and even WorkSpaces, uh, and, in, and and also Lambda, actually under under the hood, will be using technologies like EC2. And what that basically means is that a lot of the um, VPC constructs, security groups, network ACLs, uh, routing can actually uh, be used with those additional services that I just uh, mentioned. And so when you look at the connectivity, how do you actually connect your on-premises network uh, to uh, AWS? uh, The connectivity will also apply to these other services, not just Amazon uh, EC2. So the first way that you're able to connect from uh, on-premises into the cloud is over the internet, but in a secure way using VPN technology. So you have an option of either setting up a site-to-site VPN. So this is where you have your uh, long-lived connections from a particular location. Maybe it's a branch office, uh, headquarters, or maybe certain other remote offices as well. Um, And using IPsec technology, VPN technology, you can establish this point-to-point link or site-to-site link uh, to a VPN gateway that we provide that you can attach to each VPC that you define. And these VPCs can exist either in a region locally, uh, to your location, or maybe halfway across the world. The the VPN site to site would still work the same. But the key here is that it's leveraging the internet, and it also has some limitations around speed and throughput. Because you're using IPsec uh, VPN technology, you're looking at about single digit uh, gigabit per second type performance, regardless of your uh, internet uh, bandwidth or your internet internet pipes. Uh, However, it is a very efficient way to be able to set set up a very secure connection between your on-premises locations and the AWS uh, region of your choice. The second option uh, that we have is a service called Direct Connect. Uh, So Direct Connect is essentially a leased line or a dedicated line uh, from your location into uh, an AWS region. But more importantly, it actually gives you access to the global infrastructure uh, and global regions of AWS as well. So maybe let me explain. Uh, So with Direct Connect, uh, you work with your favorite uh, telco to establish a local circuit uh, from your location or locations of your choice. Again, it could be your branch offices, your remote offices, or maybe your headquarters. Um, They'll actually uh, set up a connection to one of our Direct Connect providers. So each one of our regions has uh, at least one, but most likely two or more, Direct Connect providers. Uh, You have your telco set up a link to this Direct Connect provider. And then once this link is established, you can start creating your uh, VLANs, um, or what we call... Uh, VIFs, uh, virtual interfaces, across that physical Direct Connect link to the VPCs of your choice in either the local region or, or remote regions as well. In addition to that, you can use Direct Connect to connect to some of the public services in the AWS region of your choice. So for example, if you wanna access services like S3 or Glacier directly from your on-premises location, you can do this over your Direct Connect link. And you can actually have speeds up to 10 gigabit for a single connection, but Direct Connect also now supports uh, network trunking. And what that means is you can actually combine multiple connections to get a super-sized um, uh, pipe into AWS. Uh, Direct Connect uses very familiar technology to network architects and engineers in the form of things like uh, um, 802.11q VLAN tagging to define your VIFs, Uh, things like BGP um, for route propagation between your on-premises network and the cloud, Uh, technologies like BGP communities um, as well when you want to define exactly which regions are gonna be available to your Direct Connect uh, uh, location. And what could actually happen Shane is that customers using either VPN or Direct Connect technologies can actually set up their global network infrastructure so imagine having the ability to connect to your Dublin office in Ireland when you're sitting at your desk in Sydney but you're using AWS global network infrastructure essentially as your backbone using VPN and or Direct Connect you can establish this type of connectivity
1: yeah it's a much more cost-effective way and I'd I'd even say cleaner way of being able to multi-region connectivity between offices. So that's pretty cool with Direct Connect, you know, with our lag groups is what I believe you were referring to before, being able to trunk up to four 10 gigabit connections together, you know, a 40 gigabit Direct Connect connection. Very, very cool. So look within AWS, we leverage multi-AZ architecture to create highly resilient systems. We can leverage the same methodology with connectivity to create resilient networking. So you may start off with a VPN and potentially a direct connect, but if a link goes offline, you know, what's the impact to your business going to be? In that case, you can leverage a triangulated approach in running multiple Direct Connects or VPNs with disparate providers and use BGP peering to either load balance traffic across multiple links or leverage alternate links as failover paths. So you can use the AS path attributes for multipathing. and worth noting is we will always prefer a Direct Connect connection over a
0: VPN. So this is pretty cool and believe it or not, Dean, Knowing you, I'm going to believe this, Shane, even without hearing what you're going to say. All right. Confidence in
1: me. But look, I've actually got a site-to-site VPN between my house, so in my telco rack, and the VPC in my private account. And it was actually really simple to set up. And I use dynamic routing, meaning as I add subnets in my VPC, they're available on-premises. On-premises as in your house? Uh, Yeah, my house. Well, look, it's (laughs) on-premises. So, yes, look... We know that's a little bit special, but look, Dean, for connectivity is just one part of the puzzle here. And it's one thing to have layer three connectivity, you know, layer three in the OSI model, but you need name resolution. And on-premises, maybe you're performing name resolution via you know DHCP and DNS via systems such as Active Directory, But in AWS, IP allocations are handled by DHCP but via VPC DHCP options. So I may have a workload on-premises which needs to resolve resources in AWS such as an application load balancer. And conversely, I might have an EC2 instance running my my awesome website needing to resolve a database cluster running on-premises. Short of duplicating records in multiple DNS services or using a host file, which in case isn't obvious, both are huge no-no's here. We've got a bit of a problem here, Dean.
0: Yeah, it sounds a bit of a bit like a split brain problem by, the, uh, by what I'm hearing. Um, there were various approaches um, here on how to solve this. Yeah, look, I bet you've spent heaps of time whiteboarding
1: various solutions for customers in your time, Dean.
0: You betcha. Uh, various incarnations on on really how to solve this problem. Uh, a lot of customers um, live in a hybrid world, and, and whilst AWS is a great place for hybrid workloads, it can pose challenges, as you have said. And I've seen and architected some novel and interesting uh, solutions. Uh, okay, so the best path forward here is to use the Amazon Route 53 conditional forwarder, uh, covered on episode 36 of the AWS Tech Chat in depth. But for those who have been around DNS, this as a traditional forwarder. So what this means is you can actually simplify your DNS and keep Route 53 as your source of truth, uh, leveraging Route 53 resolver forwarding rules for your internal domains. So you can, as an example, have DNS requests for internal.company.xyz uh, be forwarded to your on-premises DNS servers, and inversely, you can set up DNS forwarding on-premises into AWS using either Active Directory, Bind, or your flavor of DNS. Okay, so cool. Sticking with AD
1: and DNS-based questions, Dean, let me pose a question to you. So time is running out today. So you've made a decision to migrate workloads into the cloud, and by workloads, I mean VM-based machines. How do you do it? And I think in my mind, there are three ways to go about this. Firstly, you can rebuild your workload in AWS. You might use EC2. Hopefully, you're subscribing to that thread of infrastructure as code using tools like PowerShell DSC, Chef, Puppet, Ansible, Opsworks, etc. You know, start with a fresh slate, do your testing, maybe because it's configuration management, you can do an operating system upgrade at the same time.
0: Yeah, but maybe not everyone is using configuration management and checking in their infrastructure into source control. So true, but I encourage you all to do this. You know, it allows you to build reusable
1: patterns. Okay, so you aren't in the position to quickly roll some code onto AWS and instantiate your applications, but there are options. Our migration services are going to be key here. We have the server migration service or SMS, which allows you to block level replicate VMs from Microsoft Hyper-V, VMware, and even Azure into AWS. It allows you to automate, schedule, and track incremental replications of live server volumes, making it easier for you to coordinate large-scale server migrations. It's a really cool piece of software. And how this works is you download our virtual appliance, so that's an OVA for VMware or a VHDX for Hyper-V, you start the virtual appliance, which is a free BSD Linux-based VM. You wire it up by entering in your hypervisor and AWS details, and then either leverage the AWS console or the AWS to which Dean spoke about, to view an inventory of your virtual machines and start the replication process. Actually, super easy to do for anyone familiar with a hypervisor, and because they are being block-level replicated, other than an IP address change, it will be the exact same machine because, after all, it's all blocks. Over my time here at AWS, I've presented about the server migration service at Summits and have actually authored three blog posts using it in conjunction with other AWS services to migrate multi-tier workloads with zero downtime. So type in AWS server migration service blog into your favorite search engine and you'll see some real-world examples in both the Microsoft and open source worlds. And for our Tech Chat listeners, if you do have a question about SMS and only SMS here, Feel free to drop us a message at awstechchat at amazon.com, and I will pen you a reply. But I couldn't build these demos out without other AWS services, particularly when all applications almost these days have a data store.
0: Uh, so you've spoken about uh, the uh, server migra- service migration service. I'm sure you're leading to the AWS database migration I am, service. I am, I am. Right, so the uh, AWS Database Migration Service, uh, well, it needs no introduction, it speaks for itself, it allows you to migrate your database into AWS uh, easily and securely. So wait a second, if I've got the server
1: migration service which is replicating my VMs, why wouldn't I just use it for a database engine?
0: Uh, Well, Shane, uh, databases are a bit of a different beast here. Uh, Firstly, your block level replication isn't something you want to be doing with database engines. Uh, various, Various articles exist online comparing block or storage level replication from a SAN uh, versus native replication. The big thing here is actually data consistency. Uh, If you do this via block level replication, a a storage system will update blocks from a consistency point to a a consistency point. A consistency point is the state of the storage data structure when it's stable and complete. If a disaster were to occur while the storage at the destination point was being updated, uh, the incomplete update would be backed out so that the data in storage would be consistent. And that's the thing with DMS, as it's acting at the database layer, It is application-level aware and allows you to perform native database-level replication for various database engines, either from the same database engine to the same database engine, such as MySQL to MySQL, or even allow you to migrate database engines, such as MySQL to Amazon Aurora.
1: Okay, so quickly talk me through the process of migrating a MySQL DB into AWS.
0: Sure. Uh, So look the process is actually pretty simple. So MySQL to MySQL or MySQL to Aurora MySQL, same thing. Um, So you will start by uh, starting a DMS uh, instance, which is an EC2 instance. Uh, Before we get started, you'll need to ensure there is an IP connectivity to your DMS instance, either via public internet or like we spoke about before uh, over VPN or Direct Connect. Uh, After a database database migration instance has been instantiated, configure the source and destination endpoints and create a replication task. By attaching to the MySQL bin log, you can seed in the current data in the database and also capture all future state changes in near real time.
1: Look, with DMS, it's really going to be simple. And given it's replicated at the application layer, it's going to ensure database level consistency. And I just want to call out one anti-pattern which I've seen in the field on SMS whilst it's fresh in my mind. So SMS performs block level replication with frequencies as short as one hour. What SMS isn't is a DR replication tool to perform traditional DR. So when you create a replication job with SMS, it has a limit of 90 days. It's not designed for ongoing use. So what we do have is a white paper on DR strategies, which was recently updated in 2019. And this should keep you in good stead should you require DR in either the traditional sense or a more modern approach.
0: Uh, so Shane, we spoke a little bit little bit about on-premises to cloud migrations, um, but as you know, and we, we mentioned it earlier in this uh, podcast, in the last few months, we've actually uh, launched uh, two new AWS regions, the AWS Middle East Bahrain region, uh, but also the AWS Hong Kong region uh, just several months ago. So what about customers who are considering inter-region migrations?
1: Yeah, look, it's an interesting topic and we get asked about this all the time. The question of whether to migrate applications hosted in one AWS region to another region, especially as an other region has just come online, there could be a range of reasons why customers may want to do this. For example, data location requirements, whether self-imposed through corporate requirements or via regulators, where certain content needs to remain onshore.
0: Yeah, this is true, but it's also important to remember that it's not always the case. And we are able to work with customers uh, and their regulators, and also their risk and compliance teams to really understand uh, what are the controls and regulations in place, and whether the data truly needs to be stored onshore or is uh, potentially able to be stored uh, uh, offshore. We actually have worked with many companies that are hosting sensitive content offshore. Uh, the key here is that they're implementing the right security controls and compliance methods.
1: Another reason could be for latency sensitive applications whereby the customer requires the application to be physically closer to their end users. For example, desktop and streaming applications. Although technologies like CDN so Amazon CloudFront and WAN accelerators could help. You know, what are the the key considerations here Dean customers should take into account when contemplating migrating to another region in terms of, you know, performance?
0: Well, Shane, I'm glad you asked uh, because fortunately I was involved in the recent Hong Kong region launch uh, back in April and I've actually worked with a range of customers who are either deploying new workloads into the Hong Kong region or they're actually migrating existing workloads from on premises or other AWS regions for various reasons that we mentioned earlier. Now, my experience tells me that we really need to focus on five key areas when we're just talking about the technology considerations. Uh, The first one is around identity and access management and what we mean by this is you're ensuring that your IAM users, your IAM roles and the policies you defined can be applied to these new regions. Uh, It's interesting to note uh, Shane that uh, with the release or the launch of the Hong Kong region, we introduced a new feature with IAM and account management on AWS. Uh, Going forward, after the after March 2019, uh, all regions launched thereafter um, will require users to opt in to start using that region. So by default, they're actually opt out or they're disabled from using the region. Uh, And so what customers will need to do is use the console um, uh, or an API to enable access to those regions. And so this gives a lot of choice to customers to be able to be very specific about what regions that they can actually use across their uh, organization. Uh, The second uh, consideration is around service availability in the region. Now, uh, considering that that um, services in one region will behave the same in another um, uh, region, some regions actually may not have certain services that your current region has. So it's really important uh, to do an evaluation and maybe even a service to service mapping if you are considering moving from one region to the next. Uh, The third uh, area that we need to focus on is network connectivity and configuration. Uh, Your new region uh, network should have the same connectivity to your on-premises environments, whether it's headquarters, branch offices, and even your mobile users. So very similar to what we mentioned before, Shane, technologies such as Direct Connect Gateway, Site-to-Site VPN, and Client client VPN can really help. And then using things like uh, Route 53 for your DNS can assist with application switchover from one region to the other and makes things a little more seamless. Uh, The fourth area that you need to consider is your security controls. so making sure that the appropriate auditing, compliance checking, intrusion detection technologies such as maybe CloudTrail, uh, GuardDuty and Config, and others that maybe need to be enabled for your new region. And then finally, Shane, uh, we have the data and application migration, which we covered earlier, using services like the Database Migration Service for replicating or moving, migrating your database, and the Server Migration Service uh, for doing your block-level Replication of your VMs from one location uh, to to the other. You know, previously when I first started with AWS, it was just a matter of moving AWS, sorry, uh, uh, AMIs um, for EC two images across uh, regions. But there was still a lot of work that you had to undertake um, to complete that migration. So tools like RDS and EBS snapshot copy across regions, and like I mentioned, DMS and uh, AMS makes it a lot easier. And it also relates to the automation topic we we discussed earlier, so using things like CloudFormation and Cloud Development Kit to be able to deploy your entire stack in a new region.
1: Yeah, interesting about the ability to enable and disable region access here, Dean. You know, I can see the use case here. It's allowing a more strict control over which of the 22 regions that customers will allow their users to have access to. Dean, you also mentioned about network connectivity. Earlier, we mentioned some technologies such as VPC Peering and VPC Transit Gateway, They are going to be useful and also in regards to inter-region migration. Imagine being able to set up your network infrastructure so that your office in, say, Melbourne, where I'm here today, is able to communicate with your office in London or your branch office in Santiago. Well, this is possible with the, the aforementioned technologies. Leveraging the AWS global network, you can achieve the connectivity. So when it comes to migrations, you have access to AWS regions or resources, across multiple regions across the globe, which makes data application migration a lot easier.
0: Yeah, spot on, Shane. I just love the fact that our customers are able to set up this global network infrastructure in minutes. The important thing to consider with inter-region migration is that customers don't always have to. Uh, They can be leaving things where they are, Uh, but in the event that they need to migrate, they really need to remember these five technical considerations that I mentioned above. So Dean, whilst I could keep talking and talking along these lines with you for ages, we are out of
1: time today. I think this show is gonna be close to an hour. Yeah. (laughs) So look, in recapping today's show, it was a themed affair focusing on topics for the budding sysadmin systems engineer. We started the show by announcing a new region, Bahrain, the first in the Middle East, taking our region count to twenty-two. On the automation front, we spoke about methods and mechanisms that you can use to automate the administration of your AWS environment via the AWS CLI, AWS tools for PowerShell, CloudFormation, and now CDK, which is gone, generally available.
0: Yeah, and we kept it real with a bit of Q&A, which I really enjoyed comparing on-premises technologies with AWS, and I believe you didn't stump me uh, at all there, Shane. Uh, There's always time next episode. (laughs) <laughs> I also spoke
1: about networking by introducing concepts and explaining ways in which you can deal with hybrid workloads at both the network layer and via DNS. And lastly, we close the show out with a conversation about cloud migration options into AWS. Dean, awesome to chat with you here today. Absolutely the right co host to have here. Love being here, Shane. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. So, listeners, keep us honest. Feedback is always welcome. AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. We love good feedback email us. It helps drive the direction of this show. So join us again in two weeks, to which we'll be back with a round of updates from the month of August in 2019. But until next time, bye for now. Bye for now.
0: Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www awstickchat.com